First, it's a pleasure to see you people so often. Right? Actually, what, you weren't the most. My wife beat you out. <laughs> but she said she had enough. She's not coming again. <laughs> right? Uh, but it's a really big, what is most gratifying is not only that many of you showed up so much, is to find so many people from so many different synagogues showing up in other synagogues. In many communities, people only go to their own synagogue, and they're so happy there's so many synagogues they won't step in. <laughs> I mean, in, in, I would imagine in this group, there are more synagogues you actually have stepped in that you don't step in, and you may feel the need to construct there for more synagogues. <laughs> because, right, right? I mean, many people only go to their own synagogue, as if, you know, if you haven't paid for it, you know, God doesn't listen to your prayers unless you pay for membership. <laughs> So it's quite remarkable to create what I call a community of learners countywide. I think it's really remarkable, especially since some of the synagogues are 20 minutes apart and during traffic, 30 minutes apart, all right? And some people show it up, at least for the, uh, for the you know, refreshments at the end. <laughs> so I think it was extraordinarily gratifying, and I'm really glad that we had a lot of learning together and the quality of the questions were so good. And we're gonna come to our final talk. We have only one problem. I told Ari the topic, and he said, well, why don't you talk about the following lecture I heard you give? They didn't hear you give it, and it would be really be good. So I said, well, how do you know the talk I was planning was, wasn't going to be good? <laughs> so I said, I said, there's also an issue of tr truth in advertising. So I said, I'll tell you what you do. We're going to give them a choice and let them vote. And whatever they, most of them vote for, we'll take the opposite. <laughs> So be careful how you vote now. Now, he said, I went and gave a topic actually to the high school kids here, Judaism as a philosophy of pleasure. But I said, that's, you know, this, this group is way too old for that topic. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, I had originally suggested the topic, do Jews believe in angels, right? And since almost everybody is married, I figure you probably already came to that conclusion. Okay, so we're gonna take a vote. Our topic is, should we focus upon angels? Or should we focus upon pleasure? We can't focus upon the pleasure of angels. <laughs> right? So one is called Jews of Philosophy of Pleasure, which I'd be more than happy to give if I were prepared. And then... <laughs> but Ari asked me to do it, I could tell him no. I mean, right? He'll invite me next time and say, just don't talk so many lectures. Or we can do the angel one. So really, I'm, I'm very open to almost any suggestion. Right? All those for angels, raise your hand. Oh my gosh. All those for pleasure, raise your hand. I told you the group was too old for pleasure. You didn't believe me. This is the same topic. We came to the erotic and the mystical. One guy voted for the mystical. Right? It's the same crowd. Right? I mean, I'm glad it's down here, not in San Francisco. Could you imagine? Okay, that being the case, we'll talk about angels. <laughs> Not that I have anything to say about the subject. Okay, first, let's make it, let's, I, generally I resolve issues by, by democratic vote. All those who believe in angels, please raise your hand. All those who, yet, who, yet, who, yet, who don't yet believe in angels, raise your hand. Okay, all those who feel they've had an inexplicable experience of a spiritual nature in their life, raise your hand. 
right? And inexplicable means something's happened to you, and you can't explain in light of your categories of explaining things, right? I'll try to get all those who feel they've had an inexplicable experience, means something has happened to them, which by their normal canons of reason, they're not able to explain, and it verges on a religious or spiritual experience. If you felt you've had that way, raise your hand. Okay, I guess about half the crowd, right? Interesting. Okay, now, does Judaism believe in angels? I didn't ask whether you believe, whether Judaism believe, raise your hand. Okay, when's the last time you heard a topic on Judaism's belief in angels? Probably very similar to the time you heard the lecture on does Judaism believe in resurrection? Or does Judaism believe that God loves you? Right? They're kind of part of the same part of categories. Fascinating, because our liturgy is full of angels. And I actually turn to page 97. Just in the right to the, how many heard the lecture which I gave on uh, God and loves you, Judaism or Christianity? I think we gave it twice. Some of you actually heard it twice. Uh huh. <laughs> but the majority of you heard that. Okay. The point, not getting into the content of the lecture, the point was to what degree the contemporary Jewish mind in the presenting of Judaism has censured out those elements of Judaism which smack of Christianity. Right? It's an interesting phenomenon, demands significant investigation, how that happened and why that happened, but it's almost universal, because I've, I've noticed this all over the place. And it's not just in America. It seems, to be, it seems to be a part of contemporary Jewish experience in Christian cultures. And I would say, if I ask most of you, do we have any significant prayers in the daily liturgy focused on angels? Would anything occur to somebody? Most people, the most thing they would think of is, they think around the table on Friday night, they sing what? Shalom Aleichem. But almost everybody takes that poetically. Right? Almost everybody says, well, I sing the song, therefore what? You know, I believe in angels. In fact, even the Talmud uses an example. And a man comes home from shul, he's accompanied by a white angels and by black angels. Right? Or negative or positive angels. And he comes into the house, and if everybody's yelling and screaming, and nobody is dressed for Shabbos, and the table isn't set, right? And his wife is angry at him, the, the black angel feels, well, boy, that's wonderful. May it be this way every Shabbos. And the white angel, having no choice, has to say what? Amen. Okay? But if he comes home and the table is set, right? And the kids are smiling. And the wife just received the new flowers. And you can see the love between husband and wife and a white tablecloth, right? And you got two tables, two, two chalas. I said, boi chala, boi chala, as you say. You have a glass of wine, everything else. Then what does the white angel say? May it be every Shabbos night. And the black angel is coerced into what? Into green. Okay. Now, I imagine almost anybody who's ever been to a Jewish day school has heard that story. There's no correspondence, as far as I know, between that story and what? Belief in angels. Many people can tell the story, right? Even hear the story, not yet what? Believe what? That there actually are angels, but they say there's a moral of the story. You're using angels to, produce, to make a pedagogical point. It is, don't get too angry on Shabbos, right? Or get prepared beforehand. Or isn't it wonderful when there's as it were, marital or domestic bliss reflected in Shabbat, right? So we take it. And kids get along, and everybody's rolling, blah, 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 okay? But if you look at page 96, we have a prayer which comes right before the prayer on God's love of Israel. And I would bet you, even though it's said as often as the other prayer, because it's said right beforehand, it's, bound, it's taken as seriously as the other one. That is, the other one says, God loves you, Jews hear that and think, what? It's Christian. Right? That's one of the most amazing phenomena, because I've done this in Orthodox and Serb Reform synagogues, which means it has nothing to do with Jewish knowledge, 
nor denomination. It means there's a certain censoring in and a censoring out in the modern Jewish mind. And I think a significant factor in the censoring in and the censoring out is based on Christianity. And things which smack, it's my theory, which smack of Christianity, many modern Jews just what? Censor out of their understanding of Judaism. Interesting thing. Okay? So now look on page 97. Well, actually, we can, right? <clears throat> on 97, I will read this in Hebrew. It's a pity it's not in English, but we'll, we'll make sense of it. And the English frequently doesn't help anyhow, so. Now, it starts off. Tibarach Tzurenu, on page 3. That is, may our rock, that is God, be blessed. He is called what? Malkinu, which is our king. Goreinu, who is our redeemer. And what is he known as? Borei Kedoshim, who creates holy entities, which almost all commentators take to mean, refer to angels. Okay? That angels are created every day. Then it says, almost like a parallel phrase. In fact, if you really constructed this well, the last word of the line three should be the first word of line four. And if you do it, you'll see the lines almost match. Yishtabach, be praised, would be equivalent to the first word in line three. Forever, la'ad malkenu. Now see word three in line four? Is identical with word three in line three, both of what? Malkenu. Okay? Then the word ends with yotzer, mishortim, and the word yotzer and bore are synonymous. Both mean create. Kedoshim, Mishartim, are synonymous, both meaning angels or ministering angels. So if you sing on Friday night the song, Shalom Aleichem, the first group of angels is called Malachi Hasharit, which are ministering angels, meaning what? Angels which serve as part of a divine retinue. So here you have it. Now, now comes line four, word six. And the key letter is the Vav, as frequently is. Vav. Sometimes vav means and, and sometimes vav means with regard to. So let's try this. With regard to mishartav, that is mishart, his own servants, kulam omdim, they all stand where? Barum olam, at the heights of the universe. So how many groups of angels are there? Are there two groups or three groups? Because the first group is called Kedoshim. Right? I'm not going to translate. There's a group of angels, and the name is what called? Kedoshim. Second line, word line four, word five, we have a second group of angels called Mishartim. But then it says, Vashem Mishartav, with regard to his own servants, as if we had what? A third group, they're standing up at the heights of the universe. So some commentators say there are three groups of angels. Two groups which are created all the time, and they're created, they praise God, and what do they do? They evaporate, as it were. But there's another group in a permanent choir, and where do they hang out? They hang out barum olam, at the heights of the universe. Okay? Now what do they do there? I'm in line five, word four. What they do is mashmi'im, which means to make noise. Mashmi'im what? B'yirah. They're all in reverence. And they do it as a, as a unified choir. Yachad, kulam. They all come together. Now if I say yachad, you kulam, if I say in, this, in a canon let's all say something in unison. Well, frequently that means that before you said what? You said it responsively. And then the last one you say what? In unison. 
So, for example, if you go to a Kedusha in a synagogue, the Chazan will do a line, and then you all come together and say the line together. Right? Frequently the way it's done. You have a responsive reading, and then the whole congregation comes together in unison. Now, unison normally assumes that before that it was done alternatively. One choir does this, one choir does this. We all come together in unison. Now, it turns out that in the Greco-Roman Empire, one of the ways of coronating Caesar was that they would have two choirs say something separate, and then the actual coronation was be the two choirs would converge and say something like, Yechi HaMelech, long live the king, or some phrase which acclaims Caesar as king. So it's very likely, some people argue, at the liturgy, if we're going to declare God king, you have to borrow from what? From the ceremonies of declaring God king, which are current at the times. In the great old Roman war, how was Caesar declared God king? There'd be a ceremony. So what would we do? We appropriate that ceremony and says, no, the real king is whom? God. In fact, in the bracha, we say, baruch atah, we call God, melech haolam. One of the reasons we emphasize melech haolam is that Caesar in the Roman Empire was called cosmocrator. Cosmos means the world. It's not a journal, right? And crater is ruler or creator. So they said Caesar is cosmocrator. Came along the rabbi said, no, the real cosmocrator is real. God, he is real. Melech haolam, king of the world. So melech haolam, if you don't know it, Sounds like a nice phrase. But if you know the king is called what? Cosmocrator, then you take the phrase Melech Alam. No, the real sovereign of the universe is not a human king, but what? A divine king. Therefore, which is similarly, they used coronation procedures, which were current people knew about them, and then what? Apply them. By the way, very similar in Rosh Hashanah. One of the theories of blowing the shofar is that it's announcing a coronation event. There are about 10 different theories why we blow the shofar. What? But one of them is, what are you doing on Rosh Hashanah? You are declaring God sovereign. How do they used to declare God sovereign? In antiquity, way before the Roman period, they would what? They would blow shofarot. And there were special ways of blowing as a coronation act. For us, it doesn't work in that sense. Why? Because nobody what? Blows a shofar at a coronation of a president. You get it? In other words, when our president becomes president, what? Now, you have a president who sometimes, you know, he blew it, but it wasn't a shofar. <laughs> That's a different phenomenon altogether. Is that clear? No. So therefore, what the trouble with the shofar is, the coronation element is, a, is an educational taught element, but it doesn't resonate with our experience because what? We don't see it. To really make it something similar, you'd have to do with a shofar, and people would think of what? Of a presidential swearing or a Supreme Court swearing or something like that. Something to that effect, if you wanted to use that, that type of analogy. Okay? So that's why, among the other explanations, they'll focus on the, the ram of Isaac or the crying of Sisera's mother. Anybody hear that explanation? One of those remarkable explanations in the Talmud is, is that the, the actual Yevavah, the, when you say a tekiah, then you go shvarim, right? The truah. So the tekiah is like this long. And the truah will break, uh, the, the shvarim will break into three parts, right? I mean, and, and then, and then um, and, and the truah will break through, and, and shvarim will break into what? Nine parts. So the nine parts of the blowing is sounding like sobbing. That's what supposed to be sounding like sobbing. Who's sobbing? The mother of Sisra. 
Who was Sisera? He was a Canaanite general who had been out to what? To kill the Jews. And he came home late that night, primarily because he was dead. But his mother didn't know it. So she's at the window looking for her son coming in. And what's she doing? Like every mother, waiting for her mother to come home from battle. She's sobbing. Now, I find that almost, almost impossible to believe. That is, we Jews, right? So simple. Could you imagine, let's say, the national anthem of Israel based upon the cries of the mothers of Arafat? I mean, you'd find it so offensive. You'd say, come on, there's a limit to humanity, right? But for some reason, the ancient rabbis didn't believe there was a limit to humanity. And Sisera's mother, right? Her, her son may be, a, may be a bad guy, but she's still what? A mother. And a mother feels her what? Her son, no matter who the son is. And therefore, her sobbing becomes an example of what? Of our sobbing, meaning we're asking for God for mercy. One of the most remarkable examples we have in our tradition, although generally unknown as most remarkable aspects of our tradition is. <laughs> okay, now, so what do they do? They get together, and they are, line A6, they decide, they, they make a, 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 a unified choir of divrei elokim chayim, the words of the living God, who is what? See, sometimes vav means who is, and sometimes vav means who is. So elohim chayim, the living God, who is what? Melech. We just declared him to be melech haram. In other words, I'm talking about a coronation ceremony. Now, what do we do in this Kiramorsha? Now comes the actual ceremony. Kulam ahuvim. All of them are what? Beloved. Kulam berurim. Very difficult word, right? Either that means barur means clear, barur. But sometimes barur can mean intelligible, meaning your language is clear. You speak clearly, intelligibly. Okay? Kulam giborim. But if you look at it, it's quite clear, poetic, because it goes aleph, bet, Gimel, Kulam Ahuvim. What is the bet? Line seven, we're first word. Kulam Bururim. Then word three and four, Kulam Giborim. So you're going Ahuvim, Berurim, Giborim. But in the meantime, you hear those in sounds? Ahuvim, Berurim, Giborim. You can almost hear what? Almost some kind of vibes going on in there through the ceremony. And we'll see how that works itself out. For Kulam. And all these angels, Osim each and every one of them is doing reverently Ritzon Konam, the will of their maker. Not their buyer, Konam. Konam is biblical, means maker. Konet Shemaim Va'aretz is not a good purchaser, but a creator of heaven and earth. Okay, now. V'chulam, follow closely. Pulam, potchim et They open their mouths. Now, this is very difficult. Because the next two words say, Big Dusha, which normally translated as in holiness, Ubitahara, and in purity. Now, how do you do that? Let's everybody do that. Everybody open your mouth in purity. <laughs> okay. Open your mouth in sanctity. <laughs> now, the next two words do make sense. Because it says, Bishira Vazimra, line 9, verse 2 and 3. Because you open your mouth, what? In song. So to sing, you have to do what? Open your mouth. But how do you open your mouth in purity? Or how do you open your mouth in sanctity? Not so easy, right? Unless you Pepsi that maybe something like that, because then you wonder where, right? But what would it mean? So we'll follow what I'm going to tell you. It's quite remarkable. If you look at nine, the first three words, you open your mouth, big dusha, uvetara, shira, vizimra. What do these four words have in common? 
Ah, uh, excellent. So now we're going to focus on sounds. Ah, uh, right? Good. So open your now open your mouth as wide as you can. What sound comes out? Uh, right? So, they open their mouths. Now, what is the opposite of ah? Mm. Mm. Look at the next six words. Alright? So, you got exactly how many words? Mm, 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 mm. Exactly six. Now, according to tradition, the angels had six wings as described in the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah, right? Two for the legs, two for the arms, and two to fly, to cover. So they actually had six wings, and according to tradition, the angels sang by clapping their wings. That's the tradition. The angels sing not through their voices, but through the clapping like bees do. Now, bees make kind of a zum, 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 with zum, zam in Hebrew. How do you say that in English, zam, zam? What do bees do in English? Zoom also, right? No. What do they do? Business, okay, it's okay, the zoo. Right? Business, something like that. Business make the sound. In Hebrew, it's zms, zamzame. I guess Hebrew bees are different than. Right? But only by one letter. You get it? They have a common letter. So, what you have here is the sound of the angels, and you have exactly six verbs, and each verb ends and begins with the exact same letter, which is mem. So, Exactly six. Because who's doing the coronation? The angels. How are they doing it? They're throwing it. Their angel, when their wings flap together, they make this sound. Zoom, zoom, zoom. So now you probably have two choirs. One is saying, they open their mouths, how? You can do like an Oreo. Not a cookie, but right? And the other ones are doing, mm, right? But you, when mm, you got to say words. They say, And the others go, And you got your standard meditation sound, which is what? Which is universal. That is, you open your mouth as wide as possible. You close it as much as possible. And what do you get? Okay? Now, who are they going to coronate? So verse 11 tells you. They're going to coordinate the name, et shame, the name of what? Of, right, God, who is, follow my translation, who is called HaMelech, who's called HaGadol, who's called HaGibor, who is called Hanora. How do you know that? Any of those words look familiar to anybody? So turn to page 112. You may, on 112, you may find a prayer you, you've seen before. It has 19 benedictions and therefore called the Shemona Esrei. <laughs> but if you look with me on line 4, right, these are the, this is the biblical expression found both in book of Deuteronomy, Devarim, and Nehemiah, Nehemiah, where God is called Hagibor, Hanora, Hagadol, Hagibor, Hanora. See those three? Line four. Word two, three, and four. Hagadol, Hagibor, Vahanorah, which I'm translating not as the great, but the God who is known as, what could be called? Gadol, or what? Gibor, what is that? Nora. See those three words? Now take the same page on page 97 
And look at line 11. We have the exact same words in line 11, except what is a different word? No, no, I didn't get that far yet. If you look at only at line 11 and compare with page 112, line 4, look at the first four words on 112, line 4. Right. Uh, I will read again. Excellent. On 112, line 4, it says, Ha'el, Hagadol, Hagibor, Fahanora. Right? I have four words there. Now on page 97. Right. On 111, I have again, Ha'el. And if I skip the next word, I have what? Hagadol, Hagibor, Fanora, which are identical. There's only one word difference, which is what? Ha'melech, to underscore this is a coronation ceremony. I'm using the traditional language to describe God, which is found in the Amidah, which is found twice in the Bible, but now I'm going to differentiate it by one word. And the one word is the focus of attention. Because while God has always called these other things, in a, in a coronation ceremony, I'm going to call God what? Ha-melech, which is what? The king, which is, by the way, on Rosh Hashanah, when the service begins, the official Rosh Hashanah, the Chazan goes up and says, Ha-melech, right? Melech, that's what he does. By the way, he doesn't change any of the words on the Shabbat service. He just accentuates a different word to underscore the significance. So here, I have the standard epithets with regard to God, and I vary it by one term. The variation is Ha-melech. To underscore that in this ceremony, what is God called? King. Melech. Okay? Now, how is God called Melech? Well, the key word in the angelic coronation of God is the word Kadosh. So what's line 12? I'm going to emphasize that what? That this Melech is Kadosh. Since the other words in the line 11 are found elsewhere, the two special words are Melech and Kadosh. So now our question is, what is the connection between Melech, king, and Kadosh, holy? Now I know they're connected because in line 10, when I had, in line, at the end of nine, line 9, the last two words, and line 10, all four words, there are six words. What are the last two of line 10? Makdishim umamlechim. The word makdishim comes from the word Kadosh, which is holy. Mamlechim comes in the word Melech. So I have twice, I'm associating two themes. Melech and what word? Kadosh. The question is why? We've got to find this out. Why are those two the special words of this service? Melech and Kadosh. Because the other epithets for God are found elsewhere. So let's look. Now we're on line 12. Word 3. V'chulam. And all these angels, mikablim alehem. Translated, all of these angels, except on themselves in, in, in Hebrew, not in Hebrew, right? All the sovereignty of divine kingship. Now, does anyone know that expression elsewhere? It's in English, it's called Kabbalat Ol Machut Shamayim. Kabbalat Ol Machut Shamayim, the acceptance of divine sovereignty is the technical term for describing the Shema. That is, according to the rabbis, when you say the Shema, Hero is of the Lord of God, the Lord is one. When you say Echad, God is one, what you're doing at that moment is accepting God as sovereign. That's the theory. So now what are we doing? 
Now we're taking a human experience of declaring God sovereign, and I'm going to do what? I'm going to project it onto the angels. But the angels can't say what? Could you imagine angels going around saying, Shema Yisrael? They're not Yisrael. Who's Yisrael? Half the guys in this room, right? But So they can't say that. So what is their equivalent expression? So it says, all the angels accept God's sovereignty. Line 14. Lahakdish. See the second word which says reader? The first is lahakdish. Do not translate lahakdish to sanctify. Translate lahakdish to say the word kadosh. Right? They are going to lahakdish. They're going to say the word kadosh to whom? To their creator. And how are they going to do it? I have three expressions. They're going to do it by nachat ruach, apparently melodiously. Right? Or, right? Besafa brura, which I'm going to translate as intelligibly. Where do I get that translation for? The phrase safa brura appears only one time in the Bible, in Safanya. Interesting enough, it also appears one time in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There it's used to describe angelic language. But they argue that the angelic language is not understood by human beings. Because one of the theses of almost all ancient religion, Judaism, ancient Judaism, and Christianity, and Greco-Roman religion, is that the angel is higher than what? The human being. So one of the understandings of ancient afterlife is upon dying, your soul ascends and joins with what? The angels. But clearly the angels are higher than human beings. As far as we know, only one group in antiquity disagreed with that. And that were the rabbis. Not all Jewish groups. The rabbinic understanding of Judaism. They disagreed with what the Dead Sea Scrolls believed, the Qumran group, and what early Christians believed. Everybody else seems to all agree that the angels are higher than humanity. And therefore, human beings do what? Try to aspire to ascend to the level of the angels. So, for example, when Qumran quotes this similar material, and they refer to Isaiah's Kedushah, where the angels say, Kadosh, 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 they refer to it, but they don't cite it. The reason they don't cite it, you know why? Because who are we to use what? The language of angels. You get it? The language of angels is sacrosanct. We're not at that level. Now you can reach that level upon your death when your soul aspires upward. But as long as your soul is contained in the body, it's not angelic. But it could become angelic. So angel, angelology is human potential. According to the rabbis, the opposite. Human beings can be higher than the angels. And they argue the reason for this is a human being has a yetzahara. He has negative motivations and negative passions. So if he overcomes them and does good, he's higher than the angel who has no negative passion. Who's better? The, per the person who's always good, who has no power to do, be do evil? Or the person who has the power to do evil and, do and nonetheless what? Does good. Get it? So the rabbis argued that what, what, how do you create a hierarchy? The hierarchy is not that you're spiritually created. It's that you are a moral being. So how can you be a moral being unless you have choice? And what do you get credit for? Overcoming the temptation for evil. But if you have no temptation, you don't get credit. So therefore they argued, and the only ones we know in antiquity who argue this case, a human being is higher than the angels. 
And that is why only the rabbis cite the angelic Kedusha in their liturgy. Because after all, if we're higher than them, now when I say we are, potentially, that is the righteous or Israel, but only what? The person who overcomes temptation. If he gives in to temptation, he's lower than the angels. And if he overcomes it and harnesses the power of temptation for good, he's actually what? Higher than the angels, because the hierarchy is not based on spirituality. The hierarchy is based on morality. And the more moral you are, the higher you are up in the divine pecking order. See, they argued that since the soul is higher than the body, right? the soul is higher than the body, and since, that means the spirit is more important than the material, and the angel is all spirit, and man is at least 50% material. Who's higher? The spiritual is higher than the material. But the rabbis never agreed that materiality and spirituality determine the hierarchy. What determines the hierarchy? Morality. Therefore, if a person overcomes temptation and overcomes evil, even though he's in a body, he is religiously superior to whom? Than the angels. Thus we have, this is a radical understanding, by the way, of human nature and one of the great innovations of classical Judaism. It says, therefore he says, what do they do? So I'm going to translate Safa Brura is intelligibly. Now nobody else says this. So don't think that you're hearing something that other people agree with. <laughs> as far as I know, I'm the only person in the world who thinks this. Okay? But a majority of one is already a majority. Right? But within a couple of years, everybody will agree. As soon as the book comes out. But anyhow, safabura, meaning, what am I saying is, we human beings find angelic speak intelligible, as opposed to angelic speech what? Being way beyond the human can. Who are we to understand angels? No, we can understand them. You know why? Because we can only reach their level with the proper effort. We can what? Exceed their level. Therefore, their language is safabura to us. Okay? Now, and not only that, it's ni'ima. Ni'ima means melodiously. Right? Not sweetness. Forget about sweetness. Ni'ima in classical Hebrew means with melody. Not sweet melody, just a melody. Right? Now, what are they doing? They say the Kedusha. That's the next one. Kedusha. And here it comes. All the angels together come together ke'echad. Right? And say what? Onim. What does onim mean? Some people think onim means answer. True. But oni means, when you say answer, means respond. So you don't answer unless what? You heard something. So oni, you use the word onim as a technical term for responsive presentation. You said something, and I did what? I respond. Like we do ashray. Almost most synagogues. It's hard to find, especially if you go to a conservative synagogue, somebody knows the whole ashray. You can generally tell if they were bar mitzvah because they know every other line. <laughs> right? Nobody knows the whole thing. Right? Or Anim Zemirot. How many people go to synagogues in which they say Anim Zemirot responsively? You do? Right? Nobody? Oh. How about Ashrei? Anyone say that responsively? Yeah. Okay, that's pretty popular. Good. Okay? So, Onim is a technical term for responsively. Now, how does it work? Turn the page. <clears throat> what do they say responsively? I'm sorry to say there's a line missing in the center. It should say, 
This is strange. Vekara ze elze viamar. Does anyone see that line? Where does it say that line? It should say Vekara ze elze, and they called one to another and said Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Boy, oh boy. A 113. Okay. And yeah, look at 113. This is where the line should also be here. I don't know what happened here. Maybe that big white space, something disappeared there. I wouldn't be surprised in 98, something, there's a white space there. That's a mistake. Anyhow, if you do this, look at, line, look at page 113, line 12. Anybody here paying full tuition to the school? Huh? I'll tell you, I would ask for a scholarship. Okay, now. Okay. Look, verse 12. Follow this. Now, anybody knows any Hebrew, it looks very simple. Vekara means what? Called. To each other. Good. What do they call to each other? Vekara. First, it's singular. And the groups are called. Well, angels. So what do you mean singular? Vakara, he called Zeelzeh to each other. Good. What did he call? What did he say? Well, that way he says they call to each other. So this is one group here and a group here. What did this group say? They said Kadosh. Good. What did this group say? Okay. Then what did they do? Ah, you got it. You cracked it, right? Now, the line on three, or go back to our original text. Let's go back to where it was. Where was that? Okay, go back there. 98. They call to each other. So apparently what it means, kadosh, 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 is a combined statement. Because why would you say kadosh three times? If God is kadosh, what is it? Kadosh, kadosh, or kadosh, 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 right? So you could argue... Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh is because you believe in a trinity, which is unlikely. <laughs> Others say Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh is Kadosh is holy. Kadosh, Kadosh is more holy. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh is superlative. So you have it, comparative, finally what? Superlative. And they say it's a statement for saying what? Most holy. The trouble is we don't say that very often in Hebrew. So, for example, if you want to say song of songs, meaning the best song, what do you say? Shir Hashirim. Or if you want to say, the most holy place, you say, Kodesh Kodeshim. That's how we normally talk that way. We rarely talk in Hebrew by repeating something three times, mean what? The superlative. So since that's not the norm, that interpretation, which a lot of people accept, has very little backing. Because normally Hebrew says, Shira Shirim, the best song. Kodesh Kodeshim, the most holy. Hare Harim, the highest mountain, and so on down the line. Okay? So the other interpretation is, what you have here is one group said what? Kadosh. That's how the Talmud takes it. And the other group said Kadosh. Now what does Kadosh mean? They say, they yelled out, are you ready to say Kadosh? And the guy said, Roger. How do you say Roger in ancient Hebrew? Kadosh. <laughs> okay, why? Because in the ancient uh, ceremonies of coronation, under the Greco-Roman Empire, you had choirs. You're now going to coronate who? Caesar. The last thing to do is when two choirs coming together and one guy is one note behind the other. 
you need total what? Synchronism, which means they got to come out exactly on the right beat. You go to see a good dance group, and it's choreographed well. If a guy's one step off, you ruined it. If you go to a symphony, it's what? One sound off. It's not a symphony. It's cacophony. Mm -hmm. Cacophony and symphony is one sound. Just be one. Well, I'm almost there. <laughs> I was just fiddling around, right? Okay? So follow this. So therefore, what they did is they make sure that the two choirs came down and said, Kadosh, exactly at the right time. So according to this theory, one guy yelled out, what? Are you ready to say Kadosh? And when he answered back, Kadosh, he means what? I'm ready. Then immediately what? You said it together. Now, what confirms this interpretation, what word in the previous paragraph confirms this interpretation? The word, what confirms this interpretation in the previous paragraph is? What word? Yeah, you got it. Superb. What's your name? Mike. They write, the requirement is they say what? As one. Which means when they say it, you don't hear two voices. You hear what? One voice. Because everybody in unison said what? Kadosh. And they have to get it right. So, they call to one another. Are you ready? We got to do this what? Exactly on the right second. And you can't be a second late or a second early. In fact, the Talmud says, if they come early, they get burned up. That's the price you pay. Right? After all, they're called Surafim, which is, you get it? So it all fits in. So, now yet, so they said, Kadosh, Kadosh. Now, and then the third Kadosh is what they all said what? Together. So what do they say together? Kadosh Hashem Tzvot, that the Lord of Legions is holy. Now I emphasize this because I've been in Orange County three or four Shabbosim, or Shabbatot. Oh, okay, fine. In, in, in southern Illinois. <laughs> and every chazan did it wrong. It's actually California, no, 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 no. It's what? It's California, not Illinois, but that's okay. No, he wasn't in there. <laughs> no, because southern Illinois is where champagne is. Don't you understand this? Okay, now. Now, the way you have to say this is, right, line one on page 98. You say kadosh, kadosh. Then the next three words go together. All, every chazan I heard in Orange County went, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. And then said, Hashem Tzavot, like a dangler. So what about a God? Yeah. You have to modify. You say, Kadosh, Kadosh. And then you say what? Holy is the Lord. So therefore, the third Kadosh has to be associated with the next two words. You get it? That's, otherwise, you don't, you, otherwise you're, not, you're, you're, not, you're not putting words. In, they're not making any sense. The syntax Spelled S-Y-N, the way they did it was S-I-N, right? Although the tax remained the same, right? And then what do you say? Now, this, these words, kadosh, 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 in the mouth of the angel is equivalent to the Shema in the mouth of Israel. So when we say the Shema, according to the rabbis, it's an act of kabbalat o machut shemayim, an act of accepting God as sovereign. But the, the Siddur just said that. When they say kadosh, 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 what are the angels doing? Now, what's amazing about this? In almost every other expression of the Jewish religion and of Christianity, and by the way, also of other Greek or Roman religions, the religious goal was human beings aspire to imitate what? The angels. What we have in Judaism is the angels imitating what? Us. Which is superb evidence that in rabbinic theology, the human being could become what? Higher than the angels. And if the height of human relationship with the divine is the acceptance of divine sovereignty, then you describe the angels that even they reach that level. 
Except they use what? A different song. They can't say Shema Yisrael because what? They're not Yisrael. What do they say? Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Hashem Tzvot. Now, that line in the Bible, it appears in Isaiah chapter 6, does not mention it as a coronation ceremony. It just mentions it as the praise of the angels of God. But the, the rabbis describe the angels in human terms and say, boy, these are good angels. They're almost as good as what? As us. Which means they did a reversal of what everybody else did. Now, in light of that, you'll understand a remarkable thing of the other times this appears. Look at the Kadosh Kedusha uh, in the Amidah. We'll just look at one line. Page 113. On page 113, line 10, it says, Nikadesh, et shimcha we will sanctify your name. Where? In the world, Ba'olam. Now, how, who are we gonna, how, where do we learn this art of saying Kadosh, Kadosh? We learned it from the angels. Good. Keshem, just like Makdishimoto, Bishmei Barom, as they sanctify him in where? In the upper echelons, in the celestial spheres. Now, Makdishim means to say what? Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Now, how do you know this is true? Well, Kakatuv. It is written by your own prophet. Who is the prophet here? Isaiah. What chapter? Chapter 6. And there, what does he say? He himself, the prophet said, they called out to each other. And what did they say? Page 114. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Okay? Now turn to the next version. Look at Shabbat. And we up the ante. On Shabbat, on the Amidah, on page 300 and... Well, here's identical. So let's go to Musaf then. Okay, on the Musaf here, depending on what version you use, I think it should be about 380 or something. Uh, three what? There we go, 392. Okay, we'll actually start with 391 at the bottom. This is the version of the Kedushah as found in the Musaf of Shabbat. Correct? Verse 10 at the bottom of page 391. It starts off. Now, any of those words sound familiar to anybody? Have we said those two words before? Right? I could translate, we will adore thee and sanctify thee, but I don't want to translate the two words themselves. Have we said any word like that? What? There you go, boy. Give him. Okay, turn back. to Where is that found? On 97, those words have, if you look at 97, line 10, the last three verbs are maritzim umaktishim. So, another form is naritzcha. We do the same thing like the angels. We will naritz, we will, let's say, adore, some word like that. Umaktish, and we will what? Say the what word? Kadosh, Kadosh. So now the Musa from page 391 says it. And it tells you, where do we learn this? It's kisod. See the word sod? Sod does not mean a secret. Sod in biblical Hebrew means a group, like a choir. Sodam, lotavon nafshi. Kisod, like that unit, siach sarfei kodesh. The unit of those sarfei kodesh. These are the srafim, the holy angels, who are makdishim and shimcha 
who declare your name by saying what? Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. And then it says, Kakatuva Yadneviacha, as it is said by your prophet. And we repeat what words? Vakara Zeoze. They call to each other. And what do they say? Right? Which means what do they say? One group said Kadosh. One group said Kadosh. And all together said Kadosh Hashem Tzvaot. Okay? Good. Now, line three on page 392. Here comes the most radical thing you've ever heard of. It says, Kvodo. I'm on the last word of line three. See the word Kvodo, reader? Kvodo means his glory, his honor, his majesty. Malayalam permeates the world. Okay? So where is Kvodo? Right? So, how do you make sense of the next line? Everybody knows this, but Mishartil, his own servants, his own retinue, ask each other, Shalim, Zelazeh, you know what they say? Aye. What's Aye? Where? Makom. Place. Kavodo. His glory. Now what kind of idiocy is that? You just said that his kavod permeates the universe. And then you tell those people really in the know, what? They don't know. So how come the people in the know don't know? Maybe the people in the know are what? Not in the know. So who's in the know? Right? The power of negative thinking. Look here. Kvodo. He just said, in Mashartav, his own angels asked, Aye, where? Right? Now, where does the word Aye first appear in the Bible? Does anyone know? Right. Right? With Adam and Eve, the first question is, God said to them what? That's how, why many people think that Adam was a German Jew. Right? Because God said to him, Ayeka. Right? Which means, are you a German Jew? Which is why he didn't understand the question. Okay? Now, so he said, so what do they say? Now look at the answer. Well, I'm telling you. Baruch kavod Hashemim kamo. Now, I don't know where God's glory is, so it's somewhere in his place. Whose answer is that? That's the angels. So there's something wrong with the angels. There's something they don't know. But I thought they were in the know. So now he says, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Mim kamo, from his place, who ye fen, he will turn, mean face, from the word panim, he will turn, barachamim, in mercy. Vayachon an, verse 7. And he will grace his people. Yachon from the word chen. He will put chen, which means he will grace his people. Which people? Those who are meyachedim shemo. Those who declare his name to be echad. Meyachedim. They unite God's name by saying what? God is echad. Shema Yisrael. God is what? Echad. That's called meyachedim shemo. Now, when did they do this? Erev Avokir, evening and morning. Bechol Yom Tamid, regularly. Not just once. They do it every day, Bechol Yom, but they do it what? Regularly, right? And not only that, they do it in love. Pamayim B'Yahava. Because before we say the Shema, what is the line right before the Shema? God chose Israel out of love, which is B'Ahava. Okay? Now, here comes amazing. Shema only, they say the Shema. Now, how, what is in the Shema? Who says the Shema? Well, how do we get to us? We're talking about whom? The angels. So what's the answer? Our question is, the angels ask the question, where is God's glory? And apparently what? They don't know. I just said, God's glory is everywhere. So why did you ask, where's God's glory? So the whole, the, all, all the Midrashim on this say, the yada, which in Aramaic means, they don't know. No. So who does know? Well, if his glory were only in heaven, they would know. But who makes God's glory on earth? 
Only Israel. The angels can declare God king of heaven. They cannot declare him king of what? On earth, because they're not the denizens of the earth. So when I say kvodo malei olam, it permeates what? Into the lower spheres. But who can make God king on earth? Only human beings can make God king on earth. Now follow this, this is amazing theological. Do we declare God king? Or do we make God king? Sounds very heretical. I see. Is, is a function of, 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 let's say, the Rosh Hashanah liturgy to acknowledge divine kingship or actually to create divine kingship? So if I say the second, you say, that sounds pretty heretical. I mean, God isn't king if people don't make him so? Well, tell me, who's more powerful, a general or soldiers? Well, if a general barks out an order and no soldier complies, what is the power of the general? Ah, so who makes the general a general? The soldiers. Were the soldiers not to comply, the general would be what? Just barking out orders. And if nobody complied, you wouldn't call him a general. You'd commit him. Right? You commit to an institution. Don't laugh. A friend of mine used to do psychiatric work in a hospital. And he told me one time, he was going down, and one guy in one of the beds was yelling at the top of his voice, I'm Napoleon, I'm Napoleon. So the rabbi was trying to cool him down and said, well, who told you you were Napoleon? He said, God told me. And the guy in the next bed said, I did not. <laughs> he couldn't solve that problem. Okay, now... So I, I want to conclude this theological point. It's a very important theological point. Is when we declare God king, are we acknowledging a reality? Or are we participating in extending that reality? So when a soldier obeys a general, in actuality, what does he do? He extends the power of the general. The general is really a general. You know why? Because the soldiers obey. If they would desist from obedience, he'd be nothing but barking out orders, and you'd commit him. The reason you know he's a general is why? Because people comply. So now the question is, when Israel complies with the divine will, do they really what? Extend the divine will. That seems to be the theology behind this prayer. The angels can't do it. You know why? Because the angels have no choice. They're created, and they praise God, and what? Disappear. But human beings can defy God. So since they can defy God, and they get the capacity to defy God, when they comply, then who gets the credit? Then God gets the credit, because in complying with the divine, they really are doing what? Extending the influence or the power of the divine where? Into the universe. And they become the vehicles through which divine power is extended, just like soldiers are the vehicles through which a general's power is extended. Therefore, our ideology says, and this is probably why the rabbis held that Israel could accede to a level higher than the angels because the angels have no choice. And they can only recognize God where? As it were in heaven. But the only ones that can make God king on earth are those what? Who comply with God on earth. Therefore, they say, Where is God's glory? And the answer is what? They don't know. You know why? Because it's in the world. Who knows that? Only Israel. And how does Israel do that? When they accept divine sovereignty, they are extending, as it were, divine power from the heavenly spheres down into where? The terrestrial spheres. That's, so in some sense, we don't acknowledge God's authority. 
we actually realize, mean we are, we are participants in making it such. Now, that being the case, if that were really the case, and therefore after the Shema, God now reigns on earth, how would you end the Shema based on that ideology? If you really believe what I just said, and we're guessing the final verse to be cited in the Kedushah, since the ideology of the Kedushah is through Israel, saying the Shema, God becomes king on earth, how do you say that in one line in the Bible? Look at the very last line on the page. What is the last verse? Yimloch, Adonai, May God what? Rule forever. But you can't say that until you've said what already? The Shema. Because through the Shema, that's how God what? His rule is extended into the world. Now, we conclude by turning to the Aleinu. And turning to the Aleinu, something which you've cited several times. What page is it? Anybody find it? What? Oh, page 408. This is clearly not only the role of Israel. Israel is only the, avant, the theological avant-garde. The hope is that all humanity will catch up with Israel. How do you know that? Well, look on page 408, line 16. It says, Vikablu is referring to all the nations of the world, alluded to in the previous three lines, even the wicked of the earth. Vikabuchulam, may all, not just us, may all humanity accept what? All machutecha, the sovereignty, the authority of your sovereignty. Was the exact same phrase which we applied to whom? The angels. And the exact same phrase we applied to Israel when they say the Shema. So what Israel does when it says the Shema, and what the angels do when they say Kadosh, 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 it is our hope that what? That all humanity will come to do. So it's not the role of Israel. Israel is the theological avant-garde, and it's our fervent hope that what? We won't be left in front. They'll soon what? Catch up. And then it says, when that happens, line 16, word 6, when that happens, timloch alehem, you will then what? Rule over them like you presently do what? Rule over us, right? And if that takes place, what will happen? Jump down to verse 19. Vaya, at that moment, he now quotes Zechariah. Vaya adonai melech al At that time, the God will be what? Melech, sovereign, on the whole earth. And when that takes place at that day, all that means is we declare that God is what? But the world does not yet say so. So our hope is, now that's how the rabbis understood the Shema. Shema Yisrael, hero is the Lord, our God. The Lord is one. Now who says in English, two plus our two is four? What's the word our doing there? Just say, God is one. Or say, the Lord is our God. Why do you say the Lord is our God, the Lord is one? To which the Talmud says very simply, the Lord is our God is present reality. The Lord is one is future expectation. How do you know? And then it quotes this verse. Because Zechariah says, on that day when all humanity does what we're doing now, what will happen? The Lord will be one and his name one. Which means, we call God Echad, but in the future what? All humanity will share the sentiment of the unity of the one God. And thus we concluded a month of lectures, significantly focused on the Sibdur, on the theme that all humanity will declare that God will be one.
Okay. We will, right, a few questions, please. No, wait, uh, you can also, wait, I've said this too many times, I bet you'll get it already. Yeah, go ahead. No, not the existence, the power. The power of Does that mean that if the soldiers turn around, there is no divine authority in the, in the world? It does mean the soldiers turn around, they can undermine, right, the authority of the general. And the... And, and the not demote him. Not the what? Not demote, demote him. Can they, they can undermine the authority, right? Oh, can they come with mutiny and try to replace it? I, I know many people like that. Many countries spend all their lives doing that. No, really, I'm not laughing. I mean, I'm laughing because it's, what? What I'm saying is, this, the model holds. People can conform mutiny. They rebel against the divine. And when they rebel against the divine, they set themselves up as the alternative. As someone one time told me, there goes a self-made man who worships his creator. <laughs> we, meet, we meet them all the time. Yeah, please. Well, there is one theory, which is uh, uh, not so much agreed upon among contemporary um, philologists, that the original phrase Baruch, meaning blessed, as an expression of prayer, comes from the original prayers being on people's needs. Okay? So since you're on your knee, the prayer was said on your knee, therefore Baruch comes the word Berach. But the trouble with that is, then Baruch would really mean need. K-N-E-E-D, something like that, right? Now, there is a debate on what the word Baruch means. Does Baruch mean you are praised, or does Baruch mean you are the source of praise? So they take Baruch like word brecha. Because what do you mean, I bless you? How does human beings bless God? What they really mean is Baruch, you are the source of all blessing. Okay? But I frankly think in, in liturgical Hebrew, as in biblical Hebrew, the word levarech, to bless, or whatever it means, is synonymous with the word lahaleo. You say levarech, lahaleo, lishabech, right? And so to use synonymously, I think the word levarech means nothing more than to praise, but it became the specific use of the specific praise of God in a formulated way. In a formulated way, in a kind of a fixed way. And that's the source of the idea of bracha. Yeah, please at the back. No, 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 wait, wait, if I said that, then I'm glad you asked the question, because that's not what I intended to say. I said the angels are barum olam, on the heights of the universe, but the angels are not malay olam. God's kavod is malay olam, but to recognize that you need human beings to do what? Who make it so. Angels cannot make God king on earth. They live in the heavenly spheres. The only entity which can make God king on earth is what? People. And people, as this person said, also have the power to defy God. So then in, sense, in one sense, they can make or break. They can extend divine power, or they can what? Turn against it in a mutiny. And that's the human situation. That's the human drama. The same word olam is being used in both contexts. Is it the words that preceded that set the sphere? Oh, the word olam itself? Right. No, I added the word barum. The room means at the heights. So if you add the word barum, you're talking about the angelic realm. If you just mean olam in general, you mean the human realm. Okay? And that's, 
understanding alam in its spatial term, because in biblical Hebrew, alam frequently means temporal. So you say, me'olam va'ad alam, which merely means from the beginning of time to the end of time. It's a temporal thing. So the word olam really means totality. You can have totality in time. You can have totality in space. Yeah. Okay, two more questions. Yeah. Um, you indicated that uh, Baruch Hashem really seems to be constructed at the time of the Romans being, uh, being able to influence the Israelis. The, form, the sixth word formula of the bracha on the board, which we didn't get to, because I had too many jokes to tell, uh, that formula appears for the first time in the third century. There is an equal construct prior to that, but not those six words. Okay? And in the, the Bible, God is rarely called Melech in a prayer context. God is only called Melech three times in the whole Chumash, and one of the times in, Sef, in Devarim is of doubt. What is clear is in Exodus and Numbers, two times clearly. So for some reason, the word Melech, as the Bible goes on, gets more and more current. But to refer to God as Melech HaOlam, with the word Bracha, almost doesn't appear in liturgy before the destruction of the temple. By the third century, it becomes the official blessing formula to such a degree that the city called Dura Europis, which was a city destroyed by an earthquake in, two, four, let's say, 251, right? it was a Roman city in northern Syria. They uncovered a city which on one street had a church, a Mithraeum, and a synagogue. It's like that certain Irvine, which has three old synagogues, right? <laughs> okay. Anyhow, there on the wall of the synagogue, which was destroyed by 249, we also find that formula. But we do not find it in earlier Jewish literature. I mean, specifically, these six words in this order. There were, uh, there's a lot of bracha formularies earlier, but they're not composed of six words, nor that it's called God, Melech Olam. So there is some theory which argues that the, there was a big debate in the 2nd and 3rd century, Christians, Romans, all of the clearing that their God was what? The cosmocrator. That's the phrase in Latin. The, and, what, and the rabbis say, no, the real God is what? Our God is what? Really what? Melech Which is part of the Jewish theology at all times. Who is, who is, who is, who is, whose God is really the God of the universe? So it really was developed in response to the rest of the world. It was, it was formulated in a manner... Follow my language. It was formulated in a manner to promote rabbinic theology in a language which was current in its own day. Yeah. Right. I have a question here, a question. One, two more, because she had her hand up also. Right. And she drove me somewhere, so she gets extra credit. <laughs> No, wait, no, no, no. Referring to this passage in Isaiah as an expression of the acceptance of divine sovereignty. Okay. The, the Qumran scrolls also refer to this passage, but they don't cite it. Right. Okay. But in the Catholic Mass, they have Sanctus, which I think right. is also the same passage. Right. What, does the, what is the difference or the, between our theological usage and the Christian theology? Yeah, in that you have the Sanctus alone cited in the book of Revelations, which is the last book of their Christian Bible. Right? That's why they call it the Sanctus, because Sanctus, 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 right? Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Okay? But it's clearly there in Christian uh, scriptures, the language of the angels. And when you're doing it, you're using angelic speech. 
What is unique here is we are imposing upon the angels the ceremony of accepting divine sovereignty as if what? So what really is we're transforming the angels based upon a human mode. Well, what they do is they aspire to become like the angels. Now, part of this is, if we'd given the talk that Ari had asked about the philosophy of pleasure, I would go back to the original lecture which we gave it the first night, talking about the body and soul. If the goal, if, if spirituality, meaning the soul, is really what a human being is, then what has, the, the, what has more spirituality is superior. Who's that? The angels. Ah. But if a human being really is composed of body and soul, and they're both given equal weight, and if the material can become as sacred as the so-called spiritual, then you don't need angels to be what? The opposite. If you're in a body, and you can transform your body and your soul into a sacred entity, rabbinically speaking, you exceed the angels. So it turns out that our opening lecture on anthropology, of the nature of the human being, we talk about resurrection, really is implications for theology and its relation to the angels. Ideas coherent and they cluster together. Ideas don't exist independently. See, when you believe in one idea, it's like forming a molecule. You know, the idea is associated with another molecule because they have what, something in common. Then they create what? A structure. And you cluster ideas together. Final question, way in the back. So at the end of the day, is that yeah, it really is, yeah. Oh, well, what's your answer? You don't have an answer. She said, in the end, well, repeat it, say it out loud. Raise your voice. At the end of the day. Well, it's about quarter to nine. <laughs> right? Oh, oh, I, I, I thought you said something else. They praise God. They are created for the praise of God and to model a life of the praise of God. So we, uh, we the Gushu, we say, we're going to sanctify you as what? As the angels do. Now, here's a, here, that's, a, that's a great way of summarizing. In the original scene we, 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 we describe, the human beings are spectators watching the angels praise God. That's the first prayer after the Baruch which we began this whole session with. In the second session, we say, we're going to do it along with you. So we went from spectators to what? Partners. By the end of the Musaf, we're not longer spectators. We're no longer partners. What? We can pull off something you can't pull off. So it's almost pedagogical, meaning in the first round, you learn from your mentor. In the second round, you do what? You participate with your mentor. And the third thing, you know what you do? You outdo them. If that is an education... I don't know what is.